Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. So, uh, the focus of the sermon time today is the subject of discipleship. Uh, For the best part of the winter, we've been in the book of John, immersing ourselves in the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry and uh, teaching, and uh, that all culminated, of course, in his death and resurrection. Uh, It's been a tremendous few months in the Word together, and then last weekend, which was Easter weekend, uh, it felt like a crescendo to me. And uh, so the question this morning is where does that lead us? Where to from here? We were in the last chapter of John last Sunday, uh, and you can sense the disciples there. You can you get a sense of their angst. Uh, It's like you can see their thoughts there, and they're thinking, uh, "Now what?" You remember if you were here last Sunday. Uh, Josh said something like, um, oh, well, there's always fishing, right? Half of the 12 had been commercial fishermen before they left it all to follow Jesus, roughly. We're not sure about a few of them, but we know that at least uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John were definitely commercial fishermen and possibly a couple of others as well. And there were seven of them there on the boat that day as recorded in John chapter 21. uh, Three years after Jesus uh, walked onto that same shore and looked at those same men and said, follow me. I'm thinking that probably those are the ones that probably fish for a living, and, and then Jesus comes along. Three years of discipleship have passed, and Jesus has died on the cross, and he's resurrected from the, from the dead, and here they are back in the boat, and they fished all night and caught Nothing. And I also believe that some, if not most, of the angst that we sense in that final chapter of John comes from their sense of failure, not as fishermen as much as followers. Peter in particular, maybe, but all of them really, Peter's denial of Christ is showcased in all four of the gospel accounts. in detail, vivid detail. But all the disciples had said the same thing, right? Matthew tells us that in Matthew 26, that they all all said the same thing. And yet all of them deserted Jesus that night and they were scattered. And how do you think they were feeling about that? Can you enter into those those thoughts, those feelings? What would it have felt like? What, how would you describe how they might have felt? What words would you use? The word defeated comes to my mind. 
I, I believe that they felt like total failures. Ashamed, for sure, yeah. And they probably were thinking, you know, is there any coming back after that? Or should we just go fishing? And why else, why else would they not be, I mean, think about it, why else would they not be chomping at the bit right now, knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead? Why weren't they celebrating the victory? Why else would they just drop out of the missional calling that Jesus had prepared them for for the past three years? The only real plausible explanation that I can think of for that is in light of the fact that they now know that Jesus is risen from the dead and is alive again. I mean, think about it. The only thing I can think of is that, is that they're, they're thinking, what about me? What's, what's next for me? Is there any coming back from this? What, what now? And this is why the restoration of Peter in, in that final scene in John is so poignant. And why Jesus' words to Peter, where he leads him through that, that three-peat affirmation of his love for the Lord is so restorative, not only for Peter, but for the other disciples and for you and I. It says that after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. I can just imagine putting myself in Peter's shoes and thinking, he still wants me. That's pretty incredible. And that's where Peter, of course, turns to John. He points to John. He says to Jesus, what about him? And Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And there it is again. Follow me. Feed my sheep. Follow me. The restoration of Peter and the others was a huge thing. And perhaps some of you might have started out gangbusters for Jesus and maybe somewhere along the line you found yourself wondering the same thing. Does he still want me? Can I still call myself a follower of Jesus? Or uh, now what? Luke uh, records something that Jesus said to Peter back on the night Jesus was betrayed, just right before, right before, it comes in, in Luke's narrative, it's right before Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. He said these words, and I think we have these actually for the, for the screen there. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you in English, we can't do this, but in the Greek, the you is uh, there is plural. Simon, Satan demanded to have you, plural, that he might sift you, plural, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, Peter, 
that your faith may not fail. And when you, singular, Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I don't know how many times you may have read this passage before or not, but let's, let's think for just a moment about what that means. What it meant for Peter and what it means for you and I. Let me suggest to you that it means that Peter's lapse, along with that of the other disciples, was a, a crisis of faith, but it was not a failure of his faith. Either that or Jesus' prayer went unanswered, and I'm thinking that probably is not what happened. Because Jesus said, Peter, I pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. And I, I would love to visit that more with you today, but I'll just say this. For Christians, failure is never final. You can be restored. And that's a really big thing for Peter, for the other disciples, and for you and I. So today, we're thinking about what's next. We're talking about discipleship. I know we're coming up in two weeks' time, as Josh mentioned, to a series on discipleship, but we're going to prime the pump a little bit today. And I apologize to all of you who are too uh, young to know what that even means. <laughs> Following is a descriptor of what discipleship means. What Jesus said to Peter and the others about three years prior to John 21, you will recall these words. He said, follow me and I will make you, what? Fishers of men. Now maybe they had made the same mistake that we're prone to make, thinking that their calling to be disciples was more conditioned on their ability to follow than it was on Jesus' ability to make them followers. Because he wasn't finished with them at all. Uh, strengthen your brothers. Feed my sheep. Follow me. Jesus' answer to the question, what now, is what we often refer to as the Great Commission. When you realize that Christ has died for your sins and, ye, and has risen from the dead, what's next? Jesus said, follow me. It's discipleship. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. We're going to read that together right now. Uh, Verses 16 through 20 of Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lord, I just pray that today that we might really be enlightened in our understanding of what it means not only to be a disciple, but Lord, what it means to be your disciple. Lord, that you would quicken our understanding and enlighten our, our, our minds and, and our hearts with these things so that we might be better equipped to follow you in this world where you are so desperately needed. We pray that you would do this by your spirit and according to your will in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28 was the advanced reading notification that we sent out in preparation for the uh, sermon time today. It's not my intention to expound Matthew 28 this morning. Uh, that would be more than worthwhile. But what, what I, what I want to do this morning is just for us to think a bit more about this discipleship and what it means. Uh, this would obviously be important if we're going to go and make disciples. Uh, what does it mean Discipleship. It's an old word in a new world. How relevant is it? How relevant it is depends on whether you're focused on how much has changed or if you're recognizing the things that remain exactly as they were when Jesus said go. You know, as a pastor, I do a lot of writing, word processing, if, if you will, and uh, um, most of you would, would be familiar with uh, uh, predictive text if you're using your phone, which I should make sure mine's shut off. Yes, it is. Uh, if you're using your phone and you start to type a word and, and the software suggests words to you like that, right? Or spell check. Those of you who, who, who do write some, uh, you probably are familiar with spell check. Um, it's... Um, it's interesting that, uh, and you, you would have noticed this, I'm sure, uh, that quite a few of the words that are important to us as Christians uh, have been dropped pretty much out of common English vocabulary. They're not used anymore, uh, or at least they're not commonly used. And a lot of the time, it's like they, they, they're not even words anymore. Words that we use all the time. Words like pastor. If you type, if you go, if unless you've added it to your dictionary, your digital dictionary, if you go type the word pastor, it will not recognize that word. It usually will substitute another word, and it's almost always the word pasture. Unless that's just a hint to me, biblically, personally, I'm not sure, but but that's what it, it likes pasture. Pastor, it doesn't know what that is, and uh, so and there's quite a few words that are like that, and discipleship is one of those words. Now, sometimes we just need to get a new word. We need to embrace new words because language does change and we don't want to be speaking what has been called Christianese. Uh, but sometimes what happens is that a concept uh, ceases to be understood or embraced and we need to educate ourselves and to educate one another. And I would suggest to you that discipleship is an important word. And it's not a word that's commonly used in our day, but it's an important word for you and I if we, if we intend to be disciples, making disciples, because we need to have a discipleship culture in our churches. 
what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? And how can we make some more? Those are some of the questions we hope to address in this upcoming series starting in two weeks' time that we're calling Discipleship, How You Help Me Follow Him. But as I say this morning, I want for us together in the time that's remaining to think more about what it means to be a disciple, or more specifically, what it means to be his disciples, what it means to follow him. When Jesus called these disciples that we read about in the gospel accounts to follow him, they would have understood it to mean certain things that were familiar to them. Because while discipleship is not a concept that is common in our world today, it was very common in Jesus' day. Jesus did not invent discipleship. It was a common practice of the rabbis of Jesus' day. And it's an it's, I, I will add this at this point too. It's a vitally important interpretive principle if we want to understand scripture to understand how the original audience would have understood the things that are said. Not just the principle of, of literary context, but historical context. That is to say, uh, how would those who first heard those words understood those words? And in relation to the subject of discipleship, we need to understand that when Jesus called the disciples to follow him, it was a, discipleship was a very common rabbinical uh, tradition. Uh, so for example, uh, you may have noted that some of Jesus' early disciples had been disciples of John before Jesus came along. So before Jesus even arrives on the scene, discipleship was happening. John the Baptist had disciples. And there's something else related to this that's helpful for us to understand. Jesus was a rabbi. Those who followed Jesus called him rabbi. Those who chose not to follow Jesus called him rabbi. And Jesus himself identified himself as a rabbi. The significance of that may not be obvious to you this morning, but it is significant. Um, let's uh, take a look at John 13 as an example of Jesus embracing the role of rabbi. You're familiar with it. We just looked at it a couple of weeks ago. It says in chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Understanding is very important. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, for a messenger, uh, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
The word teacher here is a synonym for rabbi. John the apostle tells us that in John chapter 20, verse 16. In no uncertain terms, he says that if you check it out. But let me read from uh, Joseph Shulam. Uh, Joseph Shulam writing in, uh, in an article, Rabbis and their disciples between the first century and the second century AD, says this. The word rabbi means my master in Hebrew. When we look in the Greek New Testament, we see that Jesus is called rabbi 16 times. In addition, if we look at the Hebrew background of the Greek text, then everywhere the Greek says teacher, that too ought to be understood as rabbi. This would increase the number of times that Jesus is called rabbi in the gospels to 63 times. It is also clear that Jesus was a rabbi from the use of the word disciple to describe his followers. The word disciple or disciples appears in the New Testament 275 times. It is the most prevalent name that the followers of Jesus are called in the New Testament. And just as a point of interest, the, as, uh, as Joseph uh, Shulam points out, the word uh, rabbi means my master, but literally it's my great one. That's a literal translation of the, the title rabbi. Now, the New Testament Greek word for disciple, which is uh, mathates, means learner. So, rabbis were master teachers who discipled students, particularly in their interpretations of the scriptures on how life should be lived according to God's laws. And the key dynamic involved in all of this is respect for authority. The word rabbi had variations which functioned as different titles used with different degrees of honor. So the lowest was a rab, which simply meant master. But then there were rabbis, which means my master. But there were rabban, our master, plural. But the greatest title was rabbani. And rabbani, you may recall, was the title that Mary used, which means my great master. Respect, honor, and authority. <laughs> this is so important for us to understand. If you're going to teach, you need to know stuff. It's kind of like the most important law about teaching. And how do you know stuff? Well, this would be the million dollar question. It's important for us to grapple with this because to understand the authority of Jesus, it's very helpful for us to understand the authority of the rabbis in Jesus' day. Because the rabbis were all about authority and honor 
and respect. I want to read, I'm going to read a few quotes for you this morning, and I apologize for the um, academic nature of some of this. I know some of you have an, an aversion to, uh, to digging into uh, some of this stuff, but, and I, I you know, um, I'm just going to put it out there for you and uh, ask you to, to work with me. Take a little bit of effort. You're going to have to listen hard. Okay? Alfred Edersheim, who's one of my, uh, if I had to give away every, every resource I have in my library except for the Bible itself, this would be the last one I would give out. The Life and Times of Jesus by Alfred Edersheim. Edersheim's long been gone, but he was an amazing, amazing scholar in regard to the, uh, the days of Jesus' earthly life. And so listen carefully, if you would, to the words of Alfred Edersheim. And he footnotes all of this, and, and he footnotes it over and over again. I'm not going to give you the footnotes for it. But uh, from, the writings, from the writings of the rabbis, and uh, I say the writings of the rabbis of the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, when rabbis' uh, writings were collected. He says, There was no principle more firmly established by, the universal, by universal consent than that of authoritative, that, 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 that authoritative teaching we required previous authorization. Indeed, this logically followed from the principle of rabbinism. All teaching must be authoritative since it was traditional, approved by authority, and handed down from teacher to disciple. The highest honor of a scholar was that he was like a well-plastered cistern from which not a drop had leaked of what, he had, what had been poured into it. The ultimate appeal in cases of discussion was always to some great authority, whether an individual teacher or a decree by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the council, national council of the Jewish people. And if you listen to those words carefully, you will have better understanding and appreciation for why the rabbis kept over and over again saying to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do what you do and to say what you say? Because all of the Jews in Jesus' day, including all of the other rabbis, had this understanding of authority and of teaching. That authority was the result of having received teaching from those who had preceded them in the great rabbinical traditions. And then along comes Jesus and they scratch their heads and they look at each other and they say, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? That's John 7, verse 15. 
Now, it wasn't that Jesus never applied himself. It's not like he just magically knew everything. The incarnation does not imply that. We know that Jesus had a comprehensive knowledge of the scriptures. And we know further that he was very familiar with all the traditions of the teachings of the rabbis. But, and here's the thing, he'd never been discipled by any of them. He'd never been recognized by any rabbinical school or any great rabbinical teacher. Unlike all the other rabbis. And yet, somehow, and they couldn't figure out how, but somehow, he had real authority. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Where it says that Jesus taught the people saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last thing that Matthew says in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, we'll put it up on the screen there, Aiden, please. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Understand this, it wasn't that their scribes didn't teach authoritatively, like Edersheim says, all their teaching was authoritative in style. But the difference was that Jesus was his own authority and they couldn't get over that because all of their authority was to appeal to somebody else's authority, some great rabbinical teaching that they had been discipled in. And they found that to be completely astonishing. Um, something else that you might find helpful, at least interesting, if not helpful, is that although the rabbis had large bodies of teaching, it was practically all oral. They, they weren't written down. The role of the scribes was primarily to uh, make copies of scripture. That's what they uh, devoted their time to. Um, the rabbis... Uh, had this large body of tradition and teaching that was handed down to them. And after the days of Jesus and the apostles, beginning late in the first century and continuing to about the fourth century, the oral traditions of the rabbis, rabbis were inscribed. They were written down in large volumes uh, with interpretations and applications of scriptures and laws and more laws and even more laws were all recorded. And these writings are known generally as the Talmud. You may be, I don't know, anybody here have any Jewish background at all? No, that doesn't surprise me, but uh, that's okay. Uh, the Midrash, you've heard these terms. Um, is, I, I, don't, I don't have much exposure to Jewish culture, but my understanding uh, is that these, these bodies of literature form the basis for Jewish faith and practice even today, still today. 
Those are the writings that they appeal to, how to live uh, under God's law. All of those writings, all of those traditions of the rabbis, the ancient rabbis. Um, Here's a definition of the midrash. Don't roll your eyes. Listen hard. The midrash is an expansive Jewish biblical exegesis using a rabbinic mode of interpretation prominent in the Talmud. The word itself, uh, midrash, means textual interpretation. They interpreted the scriptures for people. They interpreted the law for people. They said, this is what this means, and this is how you should live. That's what they did. That was their, their whole entire bread and butter. Here's something else that's very fascinating to me, and I hope you'll find it at least mildly helpful. Jesus employed many of the teaching methods of the rabbis of his day. We love, for example, the parables of Jesus, but Jesus didn't invent parables. He created specific parables, but parables had been a mainstay of rabbinical teaching for generations when Jesus came along. And in regard to what I just said a moment ago, another thing that Jesus, uh, another way that Jesus' teaching methods mirrored the, the rabbis of his day was that Jesus didn't write anything down either. He depended on oral communication and memorization and recitation, something that we don't even, I don't even think we even do anymore. Uh, but those were, those were uh, common uh, practices for how to make a disciple 101 in Jesus' day. Here's something else that you might find interesting about Jesus as a rabbi. Even though Jesus' teaching often conflicted with the rabbis of his day, and he spent much time correcting their errors, he didn't reject it all. Jesus even taught some of the things that some of the other rabbis taught. How significant is that? I, I think, uh, well, I'll give you an example. The young man comes to Jesus and he says, Master, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, in very rabbinical tradition, says, what do you think? And the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And Jesus said, you're right. Now do it. Jesus wasn't a politician. He had no problem saying, uh, calling truth, truth when he saw it. Remember when he was 12 years old? Remember when Jesus was 12 years old and his parents found him in the temple? They thought they'd lost him. Well, they kind of did. 
But they found him in the temple. Do you remember? It says, I'll quote it for you, Luke chapter 2. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the, the teachers, 12 years old. Three, after sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Biblical scholars recognize, again, this is classic rabbinical teaching style. Listening, asking questions. So Jesus was part of the rabbinical tradition of his day, even recognizing where they got it right. But yet Jesus stands out amongst the other rabbis of his day like a diamond in a coal mine. Paul, uh, sorry, John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Jesus was part of the rabbinical tradition, but he stood out in some very key ways and it's some of these key ways that we want to explore in this upcoming series. Because while there were much similarities and uh, similarity and while there were uh, uh, many ways that Jesus... Um, function within the rabbinical um, patterns of his day, there were very sharp contrasts to his content and to his methods. You know, um, Jesus is doing a tremendous work in our day. In, in our day, today, these days. 2,000 years later, um, God's doing tremendous work in, in people's lives. Um, are you aware of some of the things? Alex made reference to some of the exciting things that are happening. Um, God is doing a work in the hearts of young adults in these days. I've had multiple conversations with pastors in recent months, and in many cases, some of these, these pastors are saying that they've, they've gone decades without seeing a whole lot happening, and now suddenly, in recent months particularly, they're seeing exciting things happen that they've been hoping, waiting, and praying for for decades, especially amongst young people. Are you aware of what God is doing in the lives and hearts of young people in our day? It's, 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 it's some exciting. It's some great to see. Now, I, personally, I think there are probably a few reasons why it's happening, why we're seeing this, this, this happening today. But I believe one major factor is the amount of uncertainty that's in our world today. We are living in a time in history when people are almost afraid to step forward for fear that the ground's going to open up because there's just so much uncertainty, so much, so much change, so many of the things that we thought were the way they, we thought they were, and now suddenly we realize we can't depend on that anymore. It's change. And I, that, has a, that has an impact on people. And, 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 I, and, I, and I tell you what, this is, what, this is one of the things that I, I want to, to, uh, you, to settle into your heart today, that in a world filled with uncertainty... Jesus speaks with authority. Not just an authority handed down to him, but an authority that he possessed. 
that he received from his father. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's right after the death and resurrection. Jesus didn't invent discipleship, but he did transform it. Because being a disciple is a thing. Being a disciple was a thing, and being a disciple is a thing, but being a disciple of Jesus is something else. And we need to understand what that something else is. But it helps to understand what it was so that we can appreciate not only what it was, but so that we can appreciate what it is and what it means. It meant something. When somebody uh, was following somebody in Jesus' day, it meant something. What does it mean when Jesus calls you to follow him? There was a great precedent for discipleship when Jesus called the 12 to follow him. But there wasn't much precedent for calling Galilean fishermen. to be your disciples. In fact, there wasn't much of any precedent at all for even calling disciples because in Jesus' day, you didn't call, the rabbis never called disciples. The disciples chose the rabbi. And along comes Jesus and he says, Peter, Andrew, follow me. And they're like, what? Looking over the shoulders to see who he might be talking to. Surely he he can't be talking to us. Discipleship in Jesus' day was for those who had shown great promise. It was kind of like, you know, uh, for the cream of the crop. It was the understood practice. You know, you want your best disciples, right? So you want the, 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 the ones that are the smartest and show the most promise. <laughs> Contrast that to Jesus. Just a ragtag bunch of fishermen. Not, not to poo-poo on fishermen, but I mean, it was just so different. So different. You know, the world may tell you that you don't have what it takes to do something really important. That's not the way Jesus works. Jesus chose his disciples. That was radical. That was radical. When you read John chapter 15, I think it's verse 16, it says, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. That was different. I want to just touch on one more difference, and I know that I'm probably, oh my, I am out of time. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this or not. I'll just see if I can, I'll see if I can sum this up, because I have three long quotes here from Edersheim that I wanted to share with you, but I, I won't read them. But I'll just tell you this, that there are several things in the narrative that you might have read over without appreciating the significance of them. One is this idea of a yoke. Remember, Jesus talked about the yoke, right? Well, the rabbis talk about yoke all the time. 
Because in their teaching, a yoke was something you put yourself under uh, and meant to put yourself under the teaching and instruction of the law through the rabbis. And so they all, they talked about that a a, a lot. Um, Another another thing that they talked a a lot about, the, uh, the rabbis talked a lot about, was binding and loosing. Because um, I will read this, this quote. No other terms in more constant use were, sorry, no other terms were in more constant use in the rabbinic canon law than those of binding and loosing. The words are the literal translation of the Hebrew's equivalence, asar, which means to bind in a sense of prohibiting, and uh, hetar, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, which means to loose in the sense of permitting. So prohibiting and permitting. This was one of the powers claimed by the rabbis as regards their laws. Uh, it was a principle that while in scripture there were some that bound and some that loosed, all the laws of the rabbis were in reference to binding. They talked about binding and loosing, but all their laws were about binding, prohibiting. Now, Consider that when you turn to Matthew 23, where Jesus categorically upbraids the Pharisees for their practices, and he says the very first thing he says to them is, you tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves, talking about the Pharisees, they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And then think about that in light of that passage, Matthew chapter 11, that we love so much. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus employed some of the teaching methods of the rabbis of his day. He even said some of the things they were accustomed to saying. But while there was a familiarity, there was also a stark contrast. And one, only one of many, but one of the more significant uh, contrasts was the teaching of Jesus unprecedented when it came to his authority. And I want to just say three things to you quickly in closing this morning, if I may. I want to say three things. One is, to be a disciple of Christ is to submit yourself under the authority of Christ. It's very hard to say that with the kind of import it deserves. But I don't think there should be any mistake about it. To be a disciple of Christ is to submit yourself under the authority of Christ. If you're here this morning and you um, have an issue with authority, you probably have an issue with what I just said. But the key words there, of course, are authority of Christ. Because this is the second thing that I want to say to you, that the authority of Christ 
is liberating, not burdensome. Unlike the wannabe authorities of Jesus' day, Jesus' authority is liberating. It brings victory in our lives. And it's not burdensome. And number three, and finally what I wanted to say to you all this morning, and I hope that as we've gone through some of this stuff, I hope you haven't found it overly academic, but it is important if we're going to understand discipleship. Uh, today, it really helps to understand what discipleship looked like when Jesus called those first disciples and what it meant and what it didn't mean. But I want to say this to you today in as simple a terms as I can. God wants to do a work in your life and he wants to use you in the lives of other people. That's the main thrust of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because a vital aspect of being a disciple of Jesus is to make other disciples of Jesus. I often think back to the days when I first came to know Jesus and how exciting it was, and how exhilarating it was, and how captivated I felt, how inspired I, I, I felt, that I had never, like I had never felt before in my, in my life. I was 21 years old. I had never felt anything like that. I had never sensed anything like that. The meaning that he brought into my life, the sense of belonging, and the sense of purpose. And that sense of purpose is like, in, like nothing else. The purpose of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ is to be his disciple, making other disciples. God wants to do a work in your life and he wants to use you. God wants to use you in the lives of other people. And we need to talk about and learn about what that looks like and how that happens because he has directives for us. How you help me follow Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about in two weeks' time. We're going to start talking more about that. Uh, but let's stand for prayer. And I uh, apologize for going a little bit long. So are you ready to rush off into the rest of your day? In your week? Take another moment as we stand and stretch our legs and take a breath. Take another moment just to think with me. What does it mean for you when you consider the fact that Jesus is calling you to follow him? What does that look like in your life? 
What is the work that God wants to do in your heart and in your life? What does that look like? It will involve his authority. Count on that. But it will not be burdensome. It will be sheer joy. And God wants you to use you in the lives of other people. Now just park on that for one second. Some of you feel like, what, what can I do in the lives of other people? What do I really have to offer? Can I even really call myself a follower of Jesus? So I'll say it one more time. God wants to use you in the lives of other people. You and him need to figure out what that looks like. And we want to help you do that. But count on it being the case. Because he does. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this tremendous group of people and for those that are listening online. And I just ask, Lord, this morning that you would be our, our teacher, our Rabboni, and that your Holy Spirit would be teaching us this day. Help us, Lord, as we consider these truths Help us, Lord, to, to better understand not only what you want us to do, but how you intend to do it in us and through us. God, help us to step out in faith. Help us, Lord, to have the kind of faith that enables us to go, to go into the lives of other people with grace and with humility but with, with great conviction and submission to your authority. Lord, we pray that you would make us and we pray that you would use us in the days ahead. We thank you for that sacrifice, that you died on that cross and you rose from the grave and that your death and resurrection make all the difference and that it's not so much about our ability to follow as it is about your ability and your willingness to make us into fishers of men. Help us, Lord, in these matters, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.